0: Welcome to World of Gas, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello fellow data nerds, my guest today is Richard Barlow. Richard is the CEO of Wejo, a connected vehicle data company. Wejo is a publicly traded company on NASDAQ. It trades under WEJO. Wejo connects and analyzes billions of points a day of millions of cars all over the world. Richard, welcome to World of Dats. Hey, nice to meet you. Excited for you to be here. Now, Wejo is a vehicle data company. It processes about 18 billion points per day. Are you working with these OEMs and taking like the basic braking data and GPS data and I don't know, the tire data? Like what data are you bringing in?
1: Yeah, so exactly that. So we work with 31 OEMs and tier one partners and fleet operators. We are forecast to have over 27 million vehicles live on platform this year. And we have access to a broad array of sensor data. It depends on the motor manufacturer, they're called OEMs. It depends on the maker to what sort of access to data we have. But typically, we have a base case of data, which is in near real time, so a sub-second latency, and that base case tends to include live location with consent to the driver. will include braking data, as you say, and other sort of expected sort of data outputs from the vehicle. With other most manufacturers, we have access to up to 200 sensors, so we know battery status, we know powertrain performance, we know weather, really rich granular data, and it's all in this near real-time environment as well. So as you say, we receive over 18 billion data points a day. At peak, we receive over half a million data points a second, and we real-time process that data. And I assume you're
0: getting the data is like relatively small in terms of bytes, because it's like it's bandwidth constraints. It's basically text data. You're not getting like visuals or sound no, yeah. or other types of things. Yeah, okay. No, yeah. Oh wow.
1: Okay. We do get some visual data. We also get ADAS data as well. We processed, I think the last public number was twenty-six petabytes of data. It usually is some form of hex or hash or text, seven-bit output, but usually on balance it's a seven-bit it's hash and hex. And that is the location GPS or the Odo reading or the breaking pressures.
0: If the vehicle's in a place where it doesn't have good cell connection, does it just batch it
1: up and send it to you later or something? Yeah, exactly that. Depends on the motor manufacturer. So some will then send you the moment the vehicle gets that signal. There's one example I can think of where they do a batch upload every week of what wasn't sent in real time. So they keep batching up in vehicle, keep storing it. And then once a week when the vehicle's static and has a reliable connectivity, then it'll send the balance of any data that's not already been sent. There is no standards in industry. That's one of the reasons I started Ouija was there's no standards. There's no standards amongst the tier one, tier two supply chain. There's no standards with the OEMs. Even the OEMs, they may not have a standard within their own maker models. So we take all this unsorted data, this data that's fundamentally different depending on the motor manufacturer, and we sort it and we apply something called a common data model. But it starts with this raw data being on the network of the vehicle, Being sent via a modem, either via the OEMs cloud or direct to our cloud. And then we start sorting this data.
0: I assume just the way it is, it's like the OEMs are kind of partners where you like rev share back to them. I assume that's the way or like that's where an outsider, what's the benefit to them to participating?
1: We have two sides to our business. So we have a marketplace business. And as you say, we typically rev share back to the OEMs on aggregates or anonymized use cases of data. And we disclose our unit economics or our vehicle billings of the value of data in those industries. So we do take from multiple OEMs live location to identify real-time congestion, real-time collisions to improve safety on roads. And we show the outputs of those data to the likes of Microsoft and to departments of transport on an anonymized basis. In that environment, we typically rev share 60% of gross receivables back to the OEM. But then on the other side of the business, and we're doing more and more of this, the OEMs are outsourcing their data management, their data cloud to us. So the OEMs are a customer as well, essentially, yeah. They pay us to run an environment with one of the established cloud providers. And the OEMs will do that because they're leveraging our core expertise the real-time processing of data to, say, identify live part failures in vehicle, which can fundamentally forecast warranty claims. That's an example of a use case where the value plays to the OEM is actually for them to fundamentally better manufacture vehicles. So there's two sides of business, both what we call solutions and marketplace. One of the advantages like a company like
0: Tesla touts is that they have great data and that they're good at collecting data and that they have really good sensors and they use the network of the other Teslas to help them create that data and that could help them maybe create a better autonomous vehicle or something like that. I assume that's a similar thing that you're touting. Okay, well, okay, maybe you don't have the same expertise as Tesla OEMX, but we could help you do that.
1: Together, you could build a great autonomous vehicle. We call it democratizing access to connected vehicle data. All the OEMs would like to have live access to data. When we're having access to 27 million live vehicles, where we see near enough 6% of all vehicle movements in New York, as an example of the amount of data we're receiving, that's hugely valuable. And aggregating that data together, building a synthetic data outcome where we can then share insights back to industry so OEMs can fundamentally improve their cars, is a hugely valuable marketplace. And to me, it is like a good start of a data co-op where you have
0: a few dozen OEMs and every time you add an OEM, it becomes more valuable for everybody in the data co-op. But like these data co-ops are really hard to get started, like getting the first guy on there, I imagine. How's the chicken and egg work of like you're giving advice to like another data company starting another market?
1: I mean, I started Ouija in 2013, 14. It took four years to get any sort of traction with any OEM. And to start with, I raised capital, built a platform, or what I thought data might look like. And then it was classic business development. You needed to put yourself in front of the OEMs and show them as to what a platform could do. And we won investment from General Motors in 2018. And that became a great sort of catalyst for then. Winning contracts with various other OEMs in Detroit and then further fields. So, we've got a huge presence now in the APAC regions, including Japan. We've won contracts in Europe. Our catalytic moment was winning the GM contract and their investment and the huge amount of data. And we showed them our platform worked and we proved some the business cases. It helped them. My previous experience was I built a data platform in the fintech industry that did very well. And I proved that I could build a platform to drive value of data. And I took that sort of same sort of use cases and applied in the automotive sector, that presented some hope value to OEMs that I'd done it before. And then we proved the platform worked. And then suddenly we were going from, I mean, in 2014, I was looking at some numbers the other day, we processed something like 2 million miles of data in the first year. We do that every second now. To give you an example of our scale of data. The types of things I could see understanding are just like patterns
0: of life, economic development, understanding traffic, understanding safety, understanding if I was like building infrastructure or if I'm like a city or county. What are some of the other maybe less obvious things that folks would want to do with your data?
1: One of our best known clients is Purdue University and they've done like 17 or more use cases with our data. And they report that before we came along, Them two to three years to analyze the data and and to identify use cases, whereas they can now run similar reports in less than an hour. And what we're finding is that by providing a live stream of data, providing a sandbox where departments of transport, where city planners, where retail planners can run live queries and then actually simulate differing outcomes. So for example, we know the wait time of every drive-through. We can tell you that now, and that's never been done before. Generally, knowing real-time data movements, not just on major highways, but on every well, on ninety-five percent of roads in the U.S. As one example, the use cases have become really interesting. Say, retail has become a big growth area for us this year, where retailers want to know where to build their next store. For example, that's super cool. That's really really cool. The newer the car,
0: the more amazing the suite of sensors that are on that car. If you had a car from twenty years ago, it may not have many of the sensors that would be as valuable. But a new car right off the lot today is going to... What are the sensors that you're like really excited about that maybe aren't even going to come in for another few years?
1: We've just completed some work with Hella Goodman. For our audience, what's Hella Goodman? They are a T1 supplier. that's a T1 manufacturer. They manufacture sensors, including ABS sensors, lights for vehicles. And one of their sensors is to identify a vehicle aquaplaning. So the wheels, Stop moving on the vehicle. Ooh, it's, so the vehicle's moving, but the wheels aren't. The wheels moving. are Yeah, yeah. we repurpose the data outcome. So we identified different use cases from that same sensor. So rather than the sensor identifying aquaplaning, what else could that sensor do by being placed in, say, the wheel arch of the vehicle? And the point in really is, is that the opportunities, the use case of the data are all, almost unlimited if you can get access to the raw data of the sensor. And there's thousands of sensors in vehicle. I think a big growth area right now is that we're still early days of EV. We're still early days of gigafactories, We're still early days of recycling EVs at the end. And if you can identify the cells in the battery pack at the end that could be saved or recycled, I think there's gonna be a huge opportunity in terms of understanding the data, but the data coming from these cells at the moment is, is almost too much. So I think there's huge opportunities there. I think ADAS, the data out of ADAS, What's an ADAS? Ultrasonic sensors in vehicles, radar in vehicles. There's a whole sort of sweep. ADAS fundamentally is a safety system, so it can identify, say, someone walking across the road. Okay, got it. So it's
0: when your car beeps because you're moving the wrong lane and something like that. Yeah, or
1: or reading a traffic light or reading a speed sign. There's a collection of sensors that are class as ADAS. I think the use case of ADAS are very nascent at the moment. They've been used for certain use cases, but I think they're repurposing that data is a big opportunity. I think the idea of, you know, you said earlier before, the idea of a cooperative of OEMs sharing the data with each other is a big push for us. And we think that's the only way that you're actually going to get mass market autonomous vehicles is if there's a cooperative data. So the OEMs don't have to, at the moment, they have to systematically deploy their own AVs in a new city and then learn that city. And then there's a slow deployment to another city, another, and there's a huge capex implication from that. There's different ways of doing that. And the funny thing is, is that the conventional vehicles already out there, are already collecting a huge amount of data that could satisfy a lot of the story of getting AVs deployed quicker. I know like Apple CarPlay, they're trying to build
0: like the sensors into the CarPlay itself so that you could see your tire pressure gauge within CarPlay. So like, how do you think the future of these like
1: dashboards are going to look like? I think there's going to be friction between whether it's Android Auto or whether it's Apple CarPlay. There's going to be friction between the motor manufacturers being happy sharing that data. They don't need to share that data. So it's called a human-machine interface, the HMI of the vehicle that tends to display CarPlay or display Android Auto. I think that's got to be resolved. In the extreme examples, yeah, sure, CarPlay's got broad access to potential sensors. Most OEMs are not going to want to embrace that idea. They're going to want to control the data, especially with Apple as their example. They've got their own potential automotive output in the future they
0: could end up being a competitor or something like that. How do different jurisdictions deal with how the data is regulated, whether it's the US or the UK or Japan? Or How do they think about this data? And do you have to do different things
1: based on the jurisdiction that you're in? When we started nine years ago, we applied sort of what we call GDPR standards, which is the European standard for protecting data. And we applied that globally, but it's got more complicated now. So now there's the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, And that's going state by state. It may well go federal. In Japan, there's a different approach to data. So how we operate is that we operate single-tenanted environments per territory. So we can apply different rule sets, different sort of compliance approaches to regulation, depending on where the vehicle's located, depending on where the data needs to be sent to. It's not just where the vehicle's located. You've got to consider about the use case of the data. So if you're taking data in for one state, but the data needs to be delivered to another state, then you've got different considerations than. Saying within state. Yeah, how does that work? Because somebody might be driving from France
0: to Germany. Somebody might be driving from Texas to Oklahoma. They may live in one versus the other. They may be renting a car versus owning the car. How does one
1: like think about all those different jurisdictional things? We have over 900 documented procedures about how we protect data. We receive data from vehicles that are driving into Canada and run back. There's a different rule set applied for that. So we offer call a regulatory wrapper to OEMs. Where it's our responsibility to protect the integrity of the data, to protect the compliance of the data, and to make sure there are no breaches. In the US, it's not just the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, you're going to worry about the Right to Repair Act as a future sort of potential risk. So the idea of having a fingerprint of how the data's been created, how the data's been curated, how it's been delivered, and be able to report back. If you're challenged and be able to prove the consent throughout the process is very important. One of the things we've offered to OEMs is a consent based platform, and we did announce we are running a consent platform for one OEM in the US market, where we provide all those protections. How do you think the idea of
0: these autonomous vehicles are going to evolve over time? Like, is it going to be either certain jurisdictions that start, or is it going to be certain types of vehicles? Like, I don't know, they're going to be autonomous buses but not autonomous like personal vehicles or
1: how should we expect that to evolve over time? I think it's going to be slow. I think there is investment now in most states. There's departments in most states for AVs, but until there's some established standards, until there's a way of the established AV providers have a cooperative approach to working, which they don't do at the moment, then it's going to be quite stilted as to to the actual overall deployment. It'll be resolved. It needs to be resolved with some standards. It needs to be resolved by the regulators because otherwise the OEMs are fairly predictable now about where they're deploying their AVs. They're deploying them in California. They're deploying them in Phoenix, Arizona. There's reasons for doing that, it's because it's easier because the regulations out there. There needs to be a better approach, but it's a long way off what advice would you give to like other
0: law listeners that are creating data companies, want to create data companies, other people are trying to build data companies. What advice would you give to them to try to get as fast as possible to something
1: successful? Yeah, I mean, there's this horrible saying that data is the new oil. You've got to know how to refine it. There's a lot of data out there. You've got to show the use case. You've got to show the business case. You've got to show the value of that data. And you've got to ask yourself that you may have a clever source of data, But is there an alternative data set that could deliver 90% of the outcomes, but be more efficient or be cheaper? So the idea of the easy way of building a data company and then finding buyers for that data, there's usually another data asset out there. You need to be very clear about how your use cases differentiate so you can get the value needed for that data.
0: If I was like a car racer or something like that, a car driver, could I use AI to help me cheat? Certainly, people could do that in chess or in poker or all these other types of things. Could you
1: imagine a car racer using AI to help them cheat even today? I think cheating is the wrong word. I think racing companies know where to push regulations. So there's there were race cars that had predictive suspension, for example, dependent on the environment that the race car was in. So the idea of a car dynamically changing its characteristics based on the driver's import based on the track, the speed, that's there. That's already out there. And that's where the FIA, for example, have some restrictions. So it is more analog than potentially it could be if the car companies were allowed to get away with it. I'm not as familiar with car racing, but you're saying like people are inspecting cars already for certain types of tech that are out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're limiting tech deployment to stop it because it is possible. We are working with a suspension provider in the UK. And the data you can get out of suspension, you might think maybe there's one sensor that measures height, maybe there's another sensor that measures pressure. There's more than two sensors in these suspension uh, suspension arms already. Even if you take, I don't know, a seat, a typical seat, it might have 35 sensors in it. So there's huge amounts of sensors in vehicles, and the data is not yet being exploited to the full. And we've provided a platform that is making it much easier to have access to a broader array of sensor data and to be able to generate use cases in our sandbox environment. Why do you think these
0: autonomous vehicles, why do you think it is taking, is it just like an incredibly hard problem, or is there some other reason why it has not yet fulfilled its promise? I own a Tesla and just like, yeah, I know there's this auto driving, and it kind of works, but you really do have to pay quite attention and it works like 95% of the time, but there's still most of the time, there's still plenty of time in any drive where it doesn't really work.
1: Well, look at Argo, what they spent, what, $2.7 before they were shut down last week. Look at the costs being incurred by the other established AV providers. Each AV has got their own approach to doing an AV deployment, which requires huge amounts of capex and it's not yet solved the issue. Tesla, I think Tesla spent, what, $10 billion before they got to break even. That's less than the combined AV spend of, of, all, of all the other providers who are still doing modest trials in a few cities in the U.S. It's a tough question. And one of the biggest challenges is that they're all recreating their own unique data asset. There needs to be a better approach. There needs to be more of a cooperative where data outcomes are shared. It, it's a long way. It does seem to me that
0: having autonomous planes or autonomous boats seems to me a much easier problem because you're just less likely to run into things than autonomous cars, but there still aren't fully autonomous planes or very few of them are fully autonomous
1: boats. Why have we not seen other modes of transportation? I think, I mean, you're seeing autonomous agricultural machinery is now starting to take off. That's a good point. You're seeing planes that are fly by wire. There is more sort of autonomy in planes. Autopilot is a big thing for boats already. So they're not autonomous. They're not designed to avoid hazards, but there's a big data conundrum every time. Only now is there enough sort of horsepower that you can cheaply enough have within the vehicle or the environment to be able to process the data and identify the outcomes quick enough.
0: You have a really cool personal story. You never went to college. got your first full-time job as a IT director when you're 18 years old. How important do you think
1: college is for people? For most people, college is very important. But... It depends on the individual, doesn't it? It depends on the passion of the individual. I didn't just become IT director when I was 18. I'd been writing for computer magazines since I was 13. I'd already built a network of contacts when I was still in school in the computing industry. I built my own platform to meet interesting players in industry, which then led to me becoming IT director. So I created my own path as opposed to going to college. For most people, college gives grounding. It helps you gives responsibility. It's something it's good for most people. But for others, it certainly is an answer. I did terrible at school. It isn't the answer to do terrible school and think you can just go and get a job. That's the story that people like to believe. But I built a platform before and I started building it when I was 13.
0: Okay, cool. All right. Last question we ask all of our guests. What conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice?
1: <laughs> wow.
0: Don't look at your competition. Don't look at your competition is the advice. And you say that's not good advice.
1: Oh, sorry. I meant the other way around. Oh, okay. People say it's bad advice to look at your competition. I think you should always look at your competition. I think you should always look at how they're doing and do better. How should like companies start thinking about that? Because yeah, you're right. A lot of people
0: say, don't look at your competition, just focus on your own product and stuff like that. I think the OEM should look at Tesla as an example of successful AV deployment. And don't you think they are like every time I talk to you OEM, they're always talking about Tesla. That's the number one. That's always the thing that the- comes up and stuff.
1: But they don't want to commit to the regulatory risks that Tesla have had to go through, for example, and they need to ask themselves, if they're not going to go through the regulatory risks that Tesla have gone through, then maybe they're never going to get there.
0: Okay. I like it. That's really good. All right. Well, thank you, Richard Barlow, for joining us at World of Desk. I follow you at Richard Wejo on Twitter. I'm encouraged listeners to interact with you there. This has been really great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Auren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Auren, and we'd love to hear from you.